to When Family Hurts. I'm your host, Rebecca Drumsta. You know, they were afraid I could never be happy without a wife and a family and a white picket fence and the American dream that, you know, in their defense, they sacrificed everything for me to have. People you call family are the most impactful relationships in your life, but far too often, the most painful ones. What happens when those cherished relationships become broken? The emotional carnage alone due to the heartbreak and trauma from lies or abuse, misunderstandings or lack of acceptance can leave you reeling and unsure what to do next. If you find yourself searching for answers, aching from the sting of being hurt by a loved one, or perplexed because you just want to do something which aids in easing your suffering, this podcast was created with you in mind. As you listen to When Family Hurts, you will be welcomed into people's personal stories. Walk with me as we unravel some complicated relationship topics and learn together by exploring new thoughts, ideas, and perspectives. My hope is that this podcast series will propel you towards emotional healing, clarifying your own needs, and establishing boundaries and relationship goals going forward, simultaneously confirming the fact that if you've been hurt by family, you are not alone. Welcome Christopher to the When Family Hurts podcast. It's great to speak with you. Thank you. I'm really appreciative of being here. Appreciate you coming on and let me share some of my story. Is there anything you wanted to share with listeners before we begin today? Talking about some really hard and heavy stuff. I know that uh, that's kind of what the, maybe the podcast and the book are about, um, but hard and heavy stuff in my own personal life um, as someone who identifies as gay and Christian. Um, uh, but also all of the people in my life that dearly love me and care about me, friends, family, people in my church community, who this is a hard conversation and a hard thing to talk about for them as well. Um, so, I, you know, that's definitely the first thing. And, uh, and then just gratitude that people are willing to listen to my story, uh, people on this podcast, family and friends of mine that were really willing to just hear about my experience. Um, but it's also my job to listen to others. Uh, and I know this is a one-way con- but my intention always in telling my story is to know that the people on the other end of this um, have their own experiences and their own thoughts and beliefs about such a difficult top topic like, uh, you know, uh, homosexuality and, and LGBT issues. And um, and then that's that's the third thing I'll say before we begin is I just dropped an acronym. I dropped the acronym LGBT issues. Um, so as I talk, I may use terms that kind of may seem unfamiliar or it might seem like I'm going off on a tangent and I just kind of ask, you know, uh, anyone listening for their patience if, if there's a new term or maybe it's something they that's heard that's new to them um, just to kind of hang in there. And I'll try not to 
to kind of overcomplicate things. Um, but, but you know, those are those are a couple of the ground rules I think that are always good when talking about talking about difficult topics. Not trying to convert anyone to change their minds on um, on what people think about um, homosexuality, marriage uh, as defined by the way they had been brought up or the way they believe. Um, but really, just grateful to be able to tell my story and, and have listeners to hear that. Mission was to promote traditional marriage as defined uh, by biblical Christianity and the Catholic Church. Um, and our job was to fight the progressive agenda, the gay agenda, gay culture, to fight same-sex marriage. And I kind of made myself, in a lot of ways, the poster child of this movement by going out and fundraising and speaking. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, a lot of it was just driven by the more I can learn about this difficult issue, the more I can do ministry, the more I can pray, the more I could be a, a missionary or do ministry, um, I could heal this inside myself or God could heal this inside of me. Um, so after that, after that job, I was probably in my early 20s, I went off to seminary to be a full-time pastor. Did you ever experience any of shame even before you came out to your family or to people around you or admitted to yourself? Was that already part of a culture that you had? Absolutely. I would say that um, the idea that I have to be someone else in public and my family and I, we were someone else in public than we are at home. That certainly played out in church, but I just think that, um, you know, the stuff isn't always just rooted in church. I think sometimes it's rooted in our culture and we bring it to church. Mm -hmm. So, so even, even today I have a family that, um, has, has found a way to accept and, and embrace me as a gay man, but there's still the, well, we love you and support you, but we don't, think we want other people to know about this because we don't know what they will think. Um, and whether it's, you know, that or any other number of issues, um, mental health struggles or whatever, I think we all struggle with that. We all struggle with the persona that we want to give off um, versus versus what's really going on inside. I would say what's difficult is, is a lot of us struggle with shame, religious or not. But when we let that shame infuse our spirituality and infuse our religion, for something as intimate of a concept of God and creator of the universe and, and, and the person who's created us, when we, when shame gets infused into that in our prayer life and our daily thoughts, it could just become so pervasive and exhausting. Um, so yeah, we struggle with that as a family, but my family actually wasn't very religious. Um, so we struggle with shame as a family, but not from a religious perspective, although I did take that shame um, and, and it became infused into my religion, if that makes sense. Here I am like living this very public ministry life and carrying that shame, right? Um, it, it got greater and greater. Like the more I wanted to heal this part of myself that I hated, uh, the, the gay feelings that I had, the more I did public ministry and the more pressure I put on myself to uh, perform. Um, and so the shame just grew and just this desperate, desperate, frightening thought that if anybody found out or if everybody found out, I would just be not only I would be destroyed, but like I would hurt people and I would cause scandal. Right. But I kept putting myself in these public personas to try to like be a witness, you know, and a faithful man. Um, but that intensity of, of this fear of scandal or this fear of everything falling apart was just growing and growing and growing in me uh, throughout my 20s. What do you think your greatest fear was? You mentioned scandal, but was that truly your deepest fear? I just, I, I just love, I love people. I love serving people. I love like helping people and the idea of hurting anyone, right? Whether it's not just judgment of them, but like if people build me up to be a certain person and I hurt them in some way, um, I think that 
that was definitely my greatest fear is like all I want to do is do good and love God and love others uh, and not hurt others. The deepest desires in me to love and be loved as a gay man, I was taught that to live those out would be extremely har harmful to other men and extremely harmful to the world. The very mm -hmm. thing that I want to do to love and be loved is actually harmful. Right. And that was my deepest fear is, is to be hurtful. So yeah, by, by the time I was about 28 years old, um, I was only ever working a nonprofit. So I wasn't making a ton of money, but I had spent $50,000 of my own money. There was a way to try to fix this inside of myself. Like I, I did it. I pre, mm -hmm. so I invested everything I could. Um, but it just was not, it was not working. I was getting more desperate. I was, I was becoming more ashamed. Uh, my anxiety levels were, you know, were going up. And then I was hearing stories about other people, as, as I open about my sexuality, you'd meet other people that are sort of in our movement, um, other gay men or, 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 you know, LGBT people, and they were facing suicide. Um, they were facing, you know, um, just deep depression and anxiety and feeling like they're living a double life as well. You had committed so much of your life to not admitting your truth to yourself or anyone, because you'd been promised that if you follow these go through counseling and heal your childhood trauma and pray these prayers or do these things that you'll be healed or cured or set free of your gayness. But that's not what you were experiencing. In fact, you started seeing the opposite where people around you were getting suicidal. And what do you think the greatest challenge was for you to overcome with that thinking? The, the greatest challenge I was facing all that time is embracing my sexuality by becoming progressive by breaking with you know moral tradition that i was going to lose everything right like that i was going to lose family that i was going to lose friends i mean my entire career at that point was working as a full-time minister in the church um so my greatest fear was loss and just grief like what's going to happen if i do this um but at that point like i know this is a crazy way to quote scripture but there's a scripture where jesus says you know what is it to gain the whole world but lose your soul and I felt like I had the whole world in public of this ministry and this life that I was living and a professional career and all these things. Um, but I just felt like I was losing my soul, right? And, and, and facing losing my life. And I'll step aside and say that like all that counseling that I did, all that money that I spent, like it's not that that therapy wasn't helpful to heal childhood trauma. Like I love mental health. And to this day, like I still aspire to maybe go back and get my master's degree and become a therapist. Like I would definitely advocate for mental health. And a lot of the therapy that I did was really beneficial in healing childhood trauma and, and, you know, learning great tactics on mental health, but it didn't make me any more attracted to women. And it didn't make me any less attracted to men. If anything, the more that I got freedom inside of me to love and be loved by healing through different struggles in my life, like the more I wanted to, to love and be loved, by men. I mean, it was, it was almost like it was, it was backfiring um, because that the, the things that I was so ashamed about were like slowly integrating over the years. You know, I'm not sure as I've been talking, if I use the words conversion therapy in this process, but it's a very, very divisive term and it's very politicized in our culture and people have different definitions and it's being outlawed in certain places and other people are fighting to keep it legal. Um, I would define conversion therapy as any kind of therapy whether it's um, legitimate and licensed and you know everybody uses it or not, any kind of therapy or therapeutic modality with the intention of someone's sexuality or their sexual orientation being changed at the end of it. Um, so I did a lot of the same therapy that other people may have done for other traumas in their life, but I had the agenda at the end of it of this will change me. 
Um, and a lot of people think that conversion therapy is not popular um, anymore, but it in churches, it is extremely, extremely popular and pervasive that um, you were not born this way. This is because of certain traumas in your life and the way that you were raised or things that you were given or not given as a child. It ripped me away from my family because the thing that I had greatest shame about was my sexuality. I was told that the reason that I was that way is because my parents failed at their job. So the thing that is driving my life and the shame that's driving my life is directly related to my parents failing at their job. So that's one thing is that conversion therapy rips you away from your family. And then the poor parents, you know, they might have four other straight kids that they raise the same damn way. But because one kid ended up gay, they're, they're, they're forced to go back into their entire child's, uh, you know, child rearing years and say, where did we screw up? And then if they believe their child's going to hell because of it, those poor parents are left thinking that their child might have eternal damnation because of their failures. Um, so it's a very, it's a very heavy storyline. Um, it's a simple storyline, but it's very, very, could be very damaging. Um, and the reason it's so believable, I think, is because it is a simple answer for a very, very complicated issue. And isn't that what we do in everything from politics to storybook movies to, you know, like <laughs> yep. uh, podcasts to songs? I mean, we like simplicity we like things to have a start and end we like reasons behind things mm -hmm. um we like but, to have a formula and a structure and put it yeah. in this box and it works and 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 we'll hear about these stories from the pulpit right they hear about these stories of this this woman or this man that was gay that left the gay lifestyle behind and now is happily married but but then you don't really track through their life currently and i think the reason is because many of those people are still really 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 struggling uh, but they're pushed into the limelight like i pushed myself into the limelight to tell this overly simplistic story that like I've won victory over this. I don't say this so that people would change their minds, but just to, to listen to people in your life that, that are being open with you about this and really, really try to hear where they're coming from. So even if you disagree on life choices, um, that they feel heard and accepted, um, even if you don't affirm their lifestyle, my dad does not affirm that lifestyle, meaning that he doesn't support it in the sense of, I think this is great for you. Go for it but he accepts it. Meaning I've accepted that this is my son's choice and I want my son to be in my life and I'm going to treat whoever he brings home with respect. And to me, that's the most I could ask for is acceptance, even if he doesn't affirm it because acceptance is that place where you realize, okay, I don't control their life. I can't change them. You know, I can't, I can't change their mind because you rate you you if you're a parent, you raise them. You know, if you're a friend, you've been with them for years and years and years. Yeah, so why all yeah. of a sudden now, that they've come out to you, do you think that you could suddenly change something like that? Playing on that, is is there anything you would like people to know about yourself or the gay community? I mean, I want people to know that um, it's not only hard for me, I know it's hard for other people, right? I know that other people are experiencing pain when they have a loved one or a friend uh, that, that chooses this lifestyle. Um, I want people to know that like, I, I want family. I love family. I've always loved family. I have a big smile on my face right now. As I say mm -hmm. that I'm looking in my bedroom up at the family photos. Like I'm, you know, we, I was taught before I came out that like gay people are an enemy of the family or that the, the gay agenda wants to destroy the family. And mm -hmm. that I think, no, like we, we want in on it. And I think that there's a, over the decades, there's a bitterness and resentment when you've been boxed out of that possibility right for generations. Um, but I love God. I love the church. Like I'm, I'm pro-life. I'm politically moderate and I'm really conflicted on most political issues. So I just, that's one thing I want to say is that 
you know, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender people are a pretty darn diverse group and they don't all want to have one agenda or one set of beliefs um, or one set of desires. I have more peace, faith in God and joy in my life than I ever thought possible. Um, and I was, I was a pretty religious guy before this too, right? Like I, I did everything I could. So it's not like I, my life hasn't changed in, in large part compared to what it was like I, I thought it might, right? I'm, I'm closer than ever with my family. I found a way to work in nonprofit um, and be involved in church work to still make a difference in the world. Um, I would love to be a counselor one day and, and counsel people. So this idea that I would suddenly turn into, you know, someone that's selfishly motivated or, or builds their life upon sin or, or selfishness is... Well, you had said your your greatest fear ultimately was that you wouldn't be able to love and serve and support and minister to people. But it sounds like after years of fighting and pressing forward, you have figured out how you can continue with that mission in your life. And, and my life is not all about who I am as a gay person. Um, the irony is, is that when I was very um, conservative and, and I was, you know, um, committed to not living out, you know, my identity as a gay man, that's what I was most focused on my gay identity. That's when it was most all consuming. That's when I allowed that identity to come before everything else. Um, and since I've, I guess you could say come out, I found that in, in a lot of ways, it's actually taken a back seat because I'm no longer trying to change it or fix it. And I'm able to put my life's energies into, you know, serving people experiencing homelessness, like serving in my church and not carrying around this big weight that I'm living a double life. So a as a, as a young conservative guy, I, you know, I, I had the argument that like, well, you shouldn't call yourself gay because you're putting your identity before, before being a beloved son of God. But I guess the irony is, is that like when I came out, a lot of religious people then put my gay identity before me being a beloved son of God. If that kind mm -hmm. of makes sense. It's like they told me not to over identify. But then when I began to be public, I felt like every, people would judge me by that and they would actually over identify me. Yeah, things are things are much better now. But I would say that my parents just dearly love me. And I think that they were just afraid. Um, I think they were afraid if I cho chose the gay lifestyle, like would I be hurt? Um, would I be harmed? Would I be unfulfilled? Um, you know, they were afraid I could never be happy without a wife and a family and a white picket fence and the American dream that, you know, in their defense, they sacrificed everything for me to have. Um, so that that was one big thing is I think they were afraid. Um, and then another big thing is like what what they were losing. Like I said about that sacrifice, like they'd sacrificed their whole life, hoping that I would live a life, the kind of life that brought them joy, mm -hmm. all the, the, the victories and the things and the greatest joys in their life. It was quite tragic for them to have to go through their own grief process of so he's not going to live any of these things that we want for him now spoiler alert I, i'm i'm living many of those things now and and in 2021 gay people like me are afforded a lot of privileges around trying to seek marriage and family um but that doesn't change the fact that they were still facing a lot of grief and they had a lot of fear um and i mean it took me 28 years well i was 28 years old it took me from about age 15 to 28. So that's 13 years to figure out where I landed on my beliefs about my sexuality. So it took me 13 years. Like maybe I should give my parents more than six months or a year. <laughs> you know, I <laughs> yeah. think that we, we do that. Like Rebecca, you and I do that when we go to counseling and we get healing for some big thing, 
that we've been working for years and years and years for, we then want everybody to get that same healing in six months time. Or a big thing that we came to terms with over a long period of time, we want to go share friends or family to sort of come to our side, like in a really short amount of time. So I think yes. we're all guilty of that, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it's just our desire for people to experience the things that are life giving and, you know, helpful to us. But I think patience was was a big thing that it was that it was a long process. What were the most intense emotions that you watched your family experience? That's a great question. I think every family member had a different experience. And I think that's also important that everybody, everybody experienced it different ways. So my mom just had such a tender love for me, but she was scared of me telling other people, you know, and so um, she accepted me and loved me and, and she wanted the best for me, but she did not want us to talk about it. My oldest sister, she was just joy filled and cracked up and laughed because it was a relief for her because she's like, ever since you were six, seven, eight years old, I always felt like I knew, uh, but I could never bring it up. And since you were so religious and you were working things out on your own, I just knew that that had to be your path. Another one of my sisters, pretty, pretty level headed about it, open about it. And then, uh, like I said, my dad is the one that um, I think has struggled the most. And I think his main emotion was, I don't know if he felt much emotion actually. Um, But I would say deep down, like even if he's not exhibiting it, I think deep desire for me to be happy and for me to live a fulfilling life based on all the hard work and sacrifice that he did for me. And I think that me at first living as a gay man was his experience of unmet desire, if that Mm. makes sense. And just like that deep pain. I know the word grief has come up once or twice in our conversation. Do you want to talk about how grief has been part of your, you and your family's journey through all of this? Yeah, I think that, that the, the, this idea of processing our grief and going through grief process has been one of the, maybe the single greatest helpful thing for me in like mending relationships and, and finding peace. And it's funny because uh, Rebecca, when we were talking about this podcast and planning, you know, I wanted to read through your book and I was really excited. And I was like, you know, maybe talk to, talk to me about some topics. And you said, well, it's a 30 day book and every single day actually like reflects on a different topic. And so I was like, okay, well, I really want to talk about grief. And so you sent me mm-hmm. the, the book and I got the PDF version. And I opened up and like day one is <laughs> about loss and day one is about loss and grief. So Go get the book. I'm giving you a head start if you haven't started it yet. And if you start it, just go go back and reread day one and maybe some new things could come up. But yeah, like the the idea that we're all grieving different losses in our life and the obvious losses are like, you know, losing a loved one, like a death in the family or even a relationship or a breakup or Mm -hmm. finding out you've had cancer or moving from one place to another, like from small town to a big city. Um, But a lot of times we don't realize these losses and we don't take stock of them when it's not something really obvious like someone dying um i remember i remember one time i heard someone say they lived on the coast for a long time right along the water and they moved to texas and they were just like super depressed and they found themselves crying like constantly and they're like what is going on um and then i think they went on vacation or they went back to get some things and they got back to the sea again to the waves and they just like suddenly realized like their body and their mind had been grieving from the sea because the sea had given them such peace and such joy uh, and such calmness and tranquility, and they had suddenly moved from it, and they didn't even realize that their body and their mind and their heart was grieving something. Mm. Um, so we all have these losses in our life, and for me, 
coming out and sort of embracing this this decision to live a gay life and lifestyle like i was terrified about losing family i was terrified about losing my job uh, my friends uh, my faith you know even my salvation um, so those are the losses that i was that i was facing and for my family it was the loss of me getting married in the way that they thought and having kids you know happiness in the way they experienced it the the loss and the grief that i might be hurt or fall away from the moral values that they give me or they were grieving the loss that maybe i would be lonely um, and so the first stage of grief is denial. It's like just denying it, you know, just push the feelings down. Um, so like, you know, if I'm, if I, it, maybe in a breakup or romantic breakup or a divorce or something, just like pushing it away and pushing it down and just moving on. Um, that's way of one way of denying it or, or, or if it's a breakup saying they'll come back, you know, he or she will mm -hmm. come back rather yeah. than really facing like, oh my gosh, this relationship, or if it, or if, or if you've been diagnosed with cancer, you know, maybe for the first few days, you're like, it can't be this. It's got to be something else. Um, so that's a natural part of grief is like to deny it and to not really embrace the loss. But then once we realize like that breakup is happening and I may lose this person forever or, oh, my gosh, my son is gay or, you know, um, whatever it may be, like that's when the anger and the sadness comes in. And that's like stage two of grief is sort of like a mix of anger and sadness. And sometimes we're crying and sometimes we're angry and we're enraged. Um, but we don't like to experience those messy emotions, a lot of us. And so we push them down and we go back to denial and we shove it down. Um, so you got denial, then you got anger and sadness. And the stage that I'm really good at that I get stuck in is bargaining. So the third stage of grief that I learned was bargaining. So like if it's a if it's a romantic breakup, it's like, well, we can't date anymore, but we could still be friends. You know, and, and maybe so, like maybe you could be friends it's with your trap. ex. It's a trap. It's a trap. Don't do it. But <laughs> right, it's it's because we're afraid of like finally letting go of that person in our life, right? And so we're bargaining. I think for me it was, well, I'll come out and everybody will understand me and I can still be involved in all the same things I was, you know. And so what bargaining causes me to do is try to argue people and make people believe what I believe, um, to try to have my cake and eat it too, you know. Um mm -hmm. put it back on you, Rebecca. What are some ways that these stick out in your life, these first two stages? three stages. Oh, hey, you're the first person to throw back in my <laughs> I think for me, when I've, I think about grief, it, it, it's like you were saying at the beginning, it's the subtleties. It's the things that you don't realize, like the loss of ocean waves. And now you're in the Texas Hill country instead, or the ideas of the things that might have been or you thought were going to be. Ooh, yeah. And so those are some of the things that I've had to grieve personally, but then also sometimes when things are taken away from you, such as a relationship that you have cherished and loved and valued, such as a family member, you have to grieve the loss of things that were. Yep. The way it used to be, the memories that you have that are now tainted or that are hurt or can never be again. And so the bargaining comes in. For me, <laughs> that's the step I don't like to admit I'm doing. Yeah. But it's where I'm, I'm trying to convince myself to, I bargain with myself to shut down an emotion or to shut down a thought or whatever without really stopping yeah. To process through, no, this is a state of grief. You're bargaining with yourself, trying to put that Band-Aid on it, to, that quick fix instead of taking enough time 
yeah. to deal with everything. Well, and man, let me just deconstruct all of American politics without without getting partisan at all. I'm just I'm just going to talk about the way it works. I think that, you know, grief is like all these losses that we have in our society. Either we feel like our freedoms are being taken away or we feel like our values are being uh, lost in society or things are being taken from us or we're paying too high of taxes or there are certain people in society that don't have the same rights as other people like society's ills all throughout the course of humanity. Right. Like that's the mm -hmm. loss. The denial are most of the people that are like, I don't want to talk about politics. Let's just pretend it's not there. Let's just not read the news. Like we all have those people that are, we're like, how do you not care about these things? You know, it's mm -hmm. just like, let's just push away the loss. Like, or let's just get on social media or whatever. Um, and then the anger and the sadness is pretty much what like the, 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 the capitalistic profit based thing that makes politics go around is like, turn on any station uh, news whether it's partisan or not, and it's just anger and sadness, anger and sadness, anger and sadness, right? Because that's what mm -hmm. we get caught in, and that's what's very powerful for us, no matter our political um, beliefs. We all know that the news is just filled with anger and sadness. Um, and I think bargaining is essentially like elections. Bargaining is oversimplistic ideas that are going to solve all the problems. That if you vote for me, I'll do this, and we'll fix this loss, right? Like, we'll fix this thing if you just vote for me. Just wait till you get the next election. It'll all be okay. Here's and, a little hope. Here's a little hope. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so keep being sold these easy solutions. And I think the final stage of grief after denial, anger, sadness, and bargaining is acceptance. And acceptance is not denying that there's a loss, but it's accepting the loss and not letting the anger and the sadness and the bargaining dominate and saying, you know what? These are really complicated issues, whether they're society-wide issues or whether they're issues in my family or their issues in my own body about my own health. These are really difficult things and things are never going to be the same. And they're never going to be the way they were before. And this may not be an easy solution out. It may always hurt. We may never fix this. Um, but I think acceptance is being willing to sit with that and I don't know, still try to be our best self, right? Like still try to be the person that we feel we're called to be with, with the highest moral ground. Um, and so for me, acceptance with my uh, gay identity was, okay, I am ready to lose my job uh, in the church. I am ready to lose acceptance of my friends. I am ready to lose what I thought was tranquility in my family um, because things actually got way better after that. But, you know, these are all the things I'm lo I, I'm I have to lose and I'm willing to lose them and I can't bargain anymore. Like it's, it's time. And for my parents, I think it was that process of, okay, we're not going to change Christopher's mind. Um, we cannot control his life. Um, but we, we don't agree with his decisions, um, but we're going to accept that and we're going to accept him. And out of that loss, out of that death, like comes a whole new resurrection. Um, so yeah, that that's acceptance. And uh, it shows up all the time, like the grief process and different things in my life. Am I willing to get to that place of acceptance? And does the anger and sadness still come? Absolutely. Am I faced with bargaining? Absolutely. Um, but they don't sting as much and they don't dominate as much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the, the idea that this is a choice. Why would I ever stake my entire career traumatizing my family ostracizing myself from small town conservative society that I loved to have sex with whoever I wanted to have sex with. Re really? Re like 
after all that I learned in the church, like I, I'm a pretty smart guy. Like I was a good student. Like my parents raised me well. I don't think I'm an idiot. And I know I'm getting a little angry here. You know, um, I'm smiling because I've grieved that anger. I'm angry and I'm smiling right now because that's a, just a ridiculous thought that I would just choose this, you know, and I'm just taking the convenient route so that I can get my kicks and have my sexual desires fulfilled. Um, and I just, yeah, I, I, I'm like a speechless as that, even though in, in the defense of that thought, I bought into that thought most of my adult life that I could just choose, that I could just choose. This is a choice. This is a choice. This is a choice. Um, you know, as if, yeah, straight people chose one day to like people of the opposite sex, you know, they didn't, they didn't choose. Um, it's just like, it, it happens that way. It's just natural. So it's hard to explain. Um, I, it's simple in some ways and complicated in others, but, and, and it's yeah. a hard thing. Cause I think that there people, you know, what they read in the paper and what they see is uh, this certain gay lifestyle of, um, I don't know, hedonism and, and people never getting married and disease and, you know, um, the pride parades and everything. And, and that's not that that's not the life that I've chosen to live, but if it were 30 or 40 years ago, that was the only life that I was afforded. Right. Let's say I would have grown up conservative 20 or 30 years ago and I couldn't, I couldn't, shake being gay and I had to come out Well, I was ostracized from conservative society and family values and the nice cul-de-sac in the suburbs. And where did I go? I went to the neighborhood where gay people are accepted. Okay. Well, there's one in every few big cities. I would like to get married, but marriage isn't really legal. So I can't do that. I would love to have kids, but adoption is not legal. So I can't do Okay. So I can't get married. I can't have kids. So what do I live for? Well, I mean, I, I can't really work in, in regular jobs because if I'm out, then I'll get fired. Right. So I, I, well, I guess I'm just going to shun most of American society and I'm going to live in this little neighborhood with these other people. And, you know, and so that's that's what you see is is and and then people from the outside say, say, look, they don't want to be American. They don't trust the American dream or they, you know, they want to destroy America. And it's like you kicked them out of the America that you belonged in. And now you're saying they want to take it down. And that clawing that you may be thinking where they're trying to take it down, maybe that clawing is them wanting back in. And maybe if you gave us a chance to live in the suburbs on our cul-de-sacs and me and my husband could sit in the pew of the church with our four adopted children, maybe you would see that we're not that much different. Um, and, and the things that we want aren't as different as you might've thought and what you might've been taught. I think I didn't realize how much more my parents had to give me, even though I was an adult, right? Like it was my late twenties, early thirties. And I didn't realize by being more open with them, and leaning on them and, and letting go of the self-righteousness that I had and this image that I had built up, like how much more I still had to receive from them, even other parents and how much more I could rely on them. Um, and so that, that's one really good thing. And like I said, I've hopefully I've, I've made it clear that my parents and I don't don't quite agree on this issue. <laughs> um, but we've had a very life giving relationship. And so that's definitely one thing about them um, that I didn't know that I would receive. And I think in turn, as I've become an adult, they have allowed me to help them as they've gotten older, um, whether it's, you know, basic things like planning vacations or taking care of my mom after a surgery or, you know, going home as my dad's getting older and he can't do all the handyman stuff he used to do. So every time I go home, there's a different handyman thing to do or a, a different technology to fix because they're not great with the apps <laughs> on their phone. 
Oh, know, me neither. Uh, me neither. No. Yeah. <laughs> it's a much more symbiotic uh, sort of give and take relationship. Um, and so that's something I just, I didn't expect that even as I talk now, there's just this big smile on my face. And do we have boundaries around what we talk about? Oh, absolutely. Oh, my parents and I do not see eye to eye on politics at all. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just like, and, and sometimes we'll laugh it off or whatever, but we just know what to talk about or not to talk about. You know, I know ways to talk about my gay experiences and not to talk about them. Not because I'm hiding, but because I'm, I'm being respectful of them. If someone just found out that someone they love, a family member, a close friend, someone they grew up with, um, what, had come out as gay, what advice is someone who loves that person but now is confused because of your conservative values, your Christian teachings, what would you say to that person? How should they proceed? What should they do? I think I'll answer this question sort of like challenging myself is that I had to do all of my own work of my own grief process in my own life until I was willing to accept where my parents were at. Um, so if, if you're that person or loved one that is not an LGBT person or is not gay and you've just been confronted before trying to argue things out or try to get explanations or whatever, um, Maybe you feel like you're ready to listen um, and, and hear them, but also know that you have your own feelings and thoughts and losses of what you thought they were or who they were um, that you might need to work through and to do that work with other friends, family, other trusted people, mental health professionals, books, um, scripture, and um, really focus on accepting, trying to get to the place of accepting your loss, not going back and finding all the arguments so that you could go back and change, but say, okay, am I willing to... You know, and I, I know it feels like giving up, but you have to give this person the benefit of the doubt. Like, is this something they just decided one day or is this something they've been struggling with for their entire adult life? Um, so I think I think that's the first thing is just being willing to start working through your grief. Um, and I also would say written form of communication is often very helpful, um, like emails back and forth, letters back and forth, because as soon as we get together with someone and we start talking, our emotions can take over, right? Like our, our limbic system, which is the more, the less rational part of us where like our most intense emotions are like that takes over our higher functioning argumentative brain. And when we think we're being rational and our higher brain, we're actually just being super emotional. So we get in a passion discussion with somebody about politics or religion or sexuality or any of the hot topics. Um, and we think we're being rational, but we have a lot of emotion. So sometimes just writing those things out on our own and journaling or writing back and forth could be really helpful because if I write a letter to somebody, they could read it five, six, seven, eight times and really try to hear what I'm trying to say. And then they could write me back and then I could write, read, you know, read five, six, seven or eight times what they're trying to say. So I definitely say written form of communication, uh, the grief process, and then there are resources out there for all of these types of struggles in our life. So, and you know, if, if it's alcoholism or codependency or whatever, right? Like there's 12 step recovery groups, um, because of the internet, there's so many uh, sort of confidential online forums that we can have now. You can go to a therapist on your computer, you know? Um, so there's so many opportunities now that you don't even necessarily have to get together in person um, and, and just start Googling. You'd be surprised how much you find on Google. Um, but particularly for maybe a parent or a loved one, um, if you have someone in your life that is LGBT and you're struggling with their decisions because they're living a progressive life and you hold a more conservative value, um, there's a website called Harbor, um, harborhere.com. 
by uh, a man named B.T. Harmon. So harborhere.com by B.T. Harmon. Uh, B.T. Harmon was a pastor's son. He grew up in a very religious family in the South, Baptist, and, uh, and he identifies as gay. And his mother is still a very devoted Christian, and she is non-affirming of his gay uh, lifestyle. Um, but they have a very, very close relationship. And the two of them together have really great things to say about how to navigate this. Um, so that's an, another really good resource. Um, and then qchristian.org uh, is another religious resource, qchristian.org um, for LGBT people. And yeah, I'm trying to think of other, uh, other things outside of Christianity. Uh, P flag is great for parents. Do you have a new sense of purpose now? It took you all these years. You've processed through with your family to some are affirming and um, some are accepting, but you're at a good place with them. Is there a new sense of purpose after all of this that you've been able to embrace in your own life, your own heart? It feels really good to share these struggles from a place of personal security and personal freedom. You know, I guess the purpose is I have a desire to share my story and to help other people, but it's just a relief to know it's not because I'm trying to fix something or work something out inside of me. Um, so I'm not as easily upset or triggered. Um, so I, I say that the purpose is, is still the same to reach out and tell my story, but um, the place that I'm sharing it from is uh, it's just a great place of freedom and joy and love other people uh, but that that freedom joy and love did not come without a lot of grief you know and a lot of hard work um, so I think that's my purpose it's just to to listen to others to tell my story and to, to try not to get tripped up um, in my in my desire to try to love love others and be loved by them well thank you so much Christopher for your time for sharing your story I really appreciate it thank you for taking us into some hard conversations and doing so with grace Awesome. Well, thank you, Rebecca, and thank you, everyone, for listening to my story.